Hello and welcome to another edition of the PCOS Diva podcast. I am welcoming back Dr. Rashmi Khadija. She is a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist who leads RMA of New York's Brooklyn office. Dr. Khadija specializes in treating couples who are trying to build their families. Welcome back to the PCOS Diva podcast. Thank you so much, Amy. My pleasure. And thank you for your wonderful articles on PCOSDiva.com. If um, listeners, if you have not checked out uh, Dr. Khadija's sort of expert opinion on various new research studies, um, please do that. And she also has a uh, we, we recorded a really great podcast about PCOS and menopause, so you don't want to miss out on that either. But today we're going to be talking about PCOS and IVF and um, I think I want to start with the question about, you know, is there a certain PCOS um, phenotype or is there, you know, who is a good PCOS candidate for IVF? Well, that's a great question. And I think, you know, in general, um, any patient or any couple that's trying to get pregnant, we sort of, you know, when they come in, we talk through all of the different options. And it is a difficult kind of question to address of how do we move down the spectrum and when do we talk about IVF. And there's probably a couple different categories uh, of reasons why, you know, we might kind of move down that path. For for sure, one is age. Um, you know, really once, you know, we're looking at the female partner being 40 and above, you know, sometimes even younger than that, depending on how the ovarian reserve testing turns out. Um, but we certainly want to at least think about IVF for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that, you know, even though someone might have good ovarian reserve numbers, that's a quantitative assessment. And we'll talk about this a little bit more, I think, as we move forward. But, you know, it doesn't sort of mitigate the age-related risk of there being chromosomal issues with the eggs, which is just something that happens as we get older. And so in that instance, we're really, you know, sort of in looking at the ratio from number of eggs that are out there to the number of healthy embryos they might make, um, that, you know, that number really starts to go up as we get older. And so for someone that, you know, is 40 plus, we might be thinking, okay, if we go through IVF and can get a good number of eggs, we'll hopefully find that healthy egg that will give a good embryo that will give a healthy pregnancy. On top of that, with IVF now, we have the ability to do what we call PGS, or pre-implantation genetic screening. And what that is is that on the fifth day of embryonic development, we can actually take a biopsy of the outer portion of the embryo that would eventually become the placenta and send that off for chromosomal testing. And so particularly as the age-related risk of chromosomal abnormalities goes up, using PGS technology with IVF helps us to avoid abnormal pregnancies that are going to result in a miscarriage or an unhealthy pregnancy and sort of get us to a healthy pregnancy a little bit faster. So that's sort of one kind of main category where we might get to IVF somewhat sooner. The other kind of main category I would say, and this is age independent, but is women that seem to either have too much of a response to other medications, whether they're oral medications um, or they have such a high ovarian reserve that with injectable medications, we just think it would be really unsafe to try to combine that with timed intercourse or intrauterine inseminations. Um, and so they sort of get stuck in the balance where, you know, maybe they're not responding well to oral medications, but if we try to use injectables, we put them at a very high risk of multiples. So sometimes it actually somewhat contra counterintuitively turns out that, you know, going from oral medication straight to IVF might make the most sense for some patients that have a relatively healthy ovarian reserve. I would say those are the two main reasons that I would say um, are particularly applicable to women with PCOS. 
So with your clients, do you, um, if they're sort of outside of that age range and you know they're a, a younger PCOS patient who's struggling to get pregnant on her own, do you advise um, some like Clomid or Letrozole cycles with IUI before you try IVF? I know that was something that um, I know I, listeners probably are familiar with my infertility journey, and um, I had a lot of trouble getting pregnant with my second child and had to go through five, five or six um, Clomid cycles before I got pregnant. And then um, I would have been uh, eligible for start to start the IVF process but and I'm sure it's independent you know everybody's has their own unique situation but um, you know what is I guess this is there a standard protocol Sure. You know, that's that's a great question. And so, you know, typically when I do sort of the new consultation, we sit down and I sort of talk someone through and say, here is kind of the spectrum of fertility treatments. And on one side, or, you know, in one bucket, as I like to say, are some of the, the less invasive, easier to do, and cheaper things. And these would be talking about using oral medications like Clomid or Letrozole and combining them with either timed intercourse or intrauterine insemination or IUI. Typically, for women that have PCOS, letrozole has been demonstrated in the past few years to be a better medication, so I usually would start with that unless someone has, you know, side effects um, from the letrozole or something like that. But generally speaking, we start with letrozole and probably, you know, again, usually IUI, but maybe time intercourse just depending on the inclinations of the couple. Um, and if it's a younger patient, you know, I'll say, look, we can try this. We'll try two to three times. And after two to three cycles, we should regroup to see where we are. We want to make sure at that time that, you know, we're responding appropriately, that we feel like the cycles have been at least going well, um, and then sort of revisit the issue and say, is this where we want to be, um, or do we want to talk about moving to the next step of treatment? And it may, it may, uh, may very well be that after two to three cycles, we say, okay, you know, maybe we want to try another two times and then talk about doing IVF. You know, there's no kind of need to move very quickly down, you know, the spectrum. Um, I want patients to feel comfortable kind of helping to guide that decision, and it becomes a balance of, you know, how um, their insurance coverage is and, you know, how comfortable they are with the process of IVF, et cetera. So there's a lot of individual factors that come in, but usually I tell people every two to three cycles of time intercourse or IUI, we should stop and regroup and say, does this plan still make sense for us, or should we talk about doing something else? Um, and the other thing that's important to keep in mind is that, you know, it's not like your period comes and you can decide all of a sudden that you want to start IVF. There's a lot of, you know, sort of logistical stuff that we usually have to do to get squared away. So a lot of times I have patients that say, you know, I'm going to try another two cycles of IUI, but I want to kind of get talking about IVF, you know, meet your IVF coordinator and get the ball rolling. And then sometimes they get pregnant, you know, before we even get to that. And then, you know, sometimes we do get to the IVF. And so, you know, there's no harm in getting information in terms of understanding what your insurance coverage is, what the prices might be, et cetera, and, you know, being prepared and informed. And that's kind of what I encourage people to do is to have the information, but, you know, we don't have to rush um, down that road unless there's other reasons uh, that seem to make sense. So I get a lot of uh, women that participate in my Jumpstart program, which is it's like an online uh, program to help you adopt healthy lifestyle habits and mm -hmm. in terms of diet and exercise and stress reduction. And these women are candidates for IVF, and you know it is a huge financial commitment for for a lot of couples, and they want to get in sort of the healthiest place that they can before they start the process. Um, you know, is there, and want to lose weight. 
So I wanted to ask you about the the weight question. Um, you know, a lot of women with PCOS struggle with their weight, and is that something that you advise your patients that you know do have some weight to lose that they try to lose the weight before they start the IVF process? Sure. You know, I think that being healthy, achieving a healthy lifestyle, and you know, managing metabolic health are probably the most important things about having PCOS, honestly, in the long run. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we get blindsided by that because, you know, obviously when we're trying to get pregnant, that becomes the primary focus and we sort of forget about all of these other things or don't have time to kind of manage everything at the same time, and that's totally understandable. But, you know, the difficult thing is that, you know, IVF is not a a cure-all solution, unfortunately. Even though rates are pretty good nowadays, you know, they're still – you know, even in our best prognosis, for example, when we do that PGS genetic screening of embryos and we put back in our lab, you know, one healthy embryo, our pregnancy rate is about 65%, which is great. That's an awesome rate to be able to give to someone. But that means 35% of people aren't successful and we don't always have a good reason for why. And I think what ultimately is going to come out the more research we do in this field is that sort of your metabolic health and having extra weight or being severely underweight for that matter, but either way, um, you know, is sending your body not not the greatest messages um, and can certainly be having local effects in terms of the lining of the uterus, the inflammation and other factors that are associated with being overweight. I can feel fairly certain that that is not a good environment in terms of the endometrium or the lining of the uterus. So, you know, ideally, yes, we would, you know, want people to be in their healthy weight prior to getting pregnant. But as you suggested, particularly as we get older, you know, I can't always tell, I'm not going to tell my 40-year-old patient that, you know, she needs to spend six months trying to lose weight when I know that that six months could have an important effect on her fertility. And so it really is a, it really is a balance. I do see a lot of young women, especially in their 20s, um, who are severely overweight or obese, um, you know, and I always check their hemoglobin A1C, screen them for diabetes. A lot of them already have prediabetes. So these are women that are in their late 20s looking to conceive and are severely overweight and are prediabetic and didn't even know it um, because nobody tested them because otherwise, you know, you would think they're young and, you know, why would they have prediabetes, but they do. And so that those are really the patients where I feel like it re- it's really important to take that time to lose the weight first. It's like, to me, it's a clear-cut answer. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I really, if the body mass index is more than 40 and we're in a, in a morbid obesity range, it's just not a good idea to be pregnant. Um, you know, the obstetric outcomes are not going to be great either. So, you know, in terms of me saying, giving somebody medication to help them get pregnant, I want them to have not only, you know, get pregnant and then leave my office, but to have a healthy baby. Um, and so, you know, that's part of that counseling. And for people that are really overweight and have a little bit of time to spare, they may even be candidates for bariatric surgery. And so that's a referral I do make sometimes as well um, because, again, you know, I'm looking at these young women. I don't want them to be 35 and now have frank diabetes and have a lot of other health conditions. So, you know, that's kind of one area where it's pretty clear cut. On the other side of things, when you know, we're, we're kind of racing the clock as well, there are some other options, particularly if someone is doing IVF. We do have the ability to say, okay, even though we know being overweight may have some impact on the ovarian stimulation itself, 
Another big area of where it matters is the implantation and the pregnancy outcomes. So we do have the ability to say, okay, let's go through the ovarian stimulation, get these embryos, freeze them, and then maybe you can spend six months losing weight and getting healthier before we do the embryo transfer. Um, you know, that's another approach that is a little bit of a compromise that might make most the most sense in, in terms of helping someone achieve a healthy pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Now, you had mentioned the 65% success rate. Um, is that for the general population, or is that your PCOS um, population in your practice? That, that's the overall population. Okay. So do you have any idea of what the success rate is for women with PCOS trying IVF? So in general, um, you know, there is some thought that, you know, when we look at the different reasons why someone might be going through um, IVF treatment, there is some thought that that PCOS women may have lower IVF success rates. But the difficult thing is that that's tangled up with a lot of other reasons. Um, So, you know, there's kind of two main aspects to IVF in in simple terms. The one is, you know, how does the ovarian stimulation process go and do we, how many eggs do we get? And then the second part is when we have those embryos, how, what, you know, what is the implantation rate? What is the chance of the embryo taking and turning into a healthy pregnancy? And in general, women with PCOS have good ovarian reserves, so we tend to get a good number of eggs, but, you know, there can be other risks that come along with that in terms of, you know, having an over-response to medication. So there are some particular things that we worry about with PCOS women during the ovarian stimulation phase, but usually we get a reasonable number of eggs relative to anybody's age, so usually the reserve is a little bit higher, um, and that's a good thing. The second aspect, I think, which is a little bit more unclear is, you know, what are the impacts on uh, implantation? And again, some of this may be due to the PCOS itself, and then some of it may be due to patients being overweight or obese. And again, like I said before, some of the inflammatory factors that get released by extra fat tissue um, may have an impact on implantation. And so I don't think that there's a really great understanding um, yet, unfortunately, in the literature of, you know, how much of all of these different outcomes is specific to having PCOS versus if there's a weight issue versus a combination of the two. Um, I wish I had a better answer for you because I'm also very interested to know what the deal is there. Um, But unfortunately, we don't have, you know, strict numbers to say this is the different contributions um, of all of these different diagnoses. Um, But in general, I would say that compared to, you know, oftentimes we compare to women, for example, that have tubal disease. So that just means, you know, their tubes are blocked, so they need IVF for that reason, but they don't have any other fertility diagnosis. Um, I would say relative to that, it does appear that women that have PCOS have a slightly lower success rate with IVF. Um, Again, you know, unclear exactly why. Um, But, you know, that being said, in any given couple, you know, we can sort of look at their individual factors and say, okay, this is a reasonable success rate for you based on, your specific ovarian reserve, your specific age, and any other coexisting diagnoses, including, you know, um, including their weight. So you had mentioned um, about the risks of ovarian hyperstimulation. Maybe you could just go into a little bit more detail so listeners can get a better feel for what that risk really is. Sure. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. So what that means, what we call ovarian hyperstimulation, essentially means that as all of those eggs are growing, they're basically growing in fluid-filled sacs that we call follicles. And as they're growing, they're making estrogen. And so particularly for a young woman with PCOS that has lots and lots of follicles, that's that polycystic part of PCOS, um, you know, if somebody has an, a baseline follicle count of, you know, 20 follicles on each egg, 
um, you know, if all 40 of those, God forbid, tried to grow into maturity, um, they would be making a ton of estrogen. And if that level gets too high, um, then we sort of end up in this severe hyperstimulation syndrome uh, range. And what the messages that that high estrogen sends to your body end up resulting in is basically that our blood vessels become very leaky. And so the water content that's normally in your bloodstream starts to spill out into your abdomen. You get really distended, feel very bloated. And at the same time, your bloodstream is getting very concentrated. So your urine output goes down. Your blood is very thick. It has a propensity to clotting. It can, you know, lead to a blood clot, um, which can be serious. So there's a lot of different factors that go into um, or a lot of things that can happen if you have severe hyperstimulation. So we definitely try to avoid that. Um, the ways to avoid that, essentially, and this is what you know how I would explain it to my patients as well, is one, when we, we try to stimulate you as safely as possible. So I always say, you know, we want to get as many eggs as we can safely. Um, again, if somebody has 40 potential eggs, I don't want to get 40 eggs. It's very unlikely to get 40 mature eggs with a healthy estrogen or a safe estrogen level. Um, so we try to be realistic in terms of, you know, what we're doing in terms of our stimulation, the doses, et cetera. And then on, the other thing that we have is there are certain protocols that can use different medications for the ovulation trigger that also decrease the chances of hyperstimulation developing. So those are kind of two of the important things that should be taken into account for anybody that has a really robust ovarian reserve is kind of the dose or the, you know, how the dose of the medications affects your chances of your estrogen levels getting too high. And then what kind of trigger medication is ordered? A Lupron trigger um, is the medication that we typically use um, that prevents severe OHSS or it really mitigates that risk. Um, and then the other thing that kind of goes along with all of that that's important to remember is that, you know, there is kind of an emerging story in our field that though the high estrogen levels that we make during ovarian stimulation are a good sign in terms of the health of the ovary and the eggs, that high circulating estrogen level may not be so great for the endometrium um, or the lining of the uterus. And so it may be that particularly in women that have, you know, PCOS with a really high reserve and they make a ton of eggs and their estrogen level goes very high, oftentimes we'll plan to do, you know, to, to do the egg retrieval, have the embryos and freeze them and do a subsequent embryo transfer um, with a frozen cycle where the estrogen levels will be more physiologic and, you know, we presume that the implantation rate would be better um, because it's a little bit healthier for the lining. So that's a, that's a common approach we also take to mitigate the risks um, of hyperstimulation because if somebody has high estrogen levels and then they get pregnant, that will propagate the, the condition to continue and get even worse. And so that's another consideration people should realize that if they have a very robust response, it's best for them to freeze all the embryos and then do a frozen transfer later. Okay. And is that um, is, is that called IVM, the, that process that you just described? <laughs> I, um, there's this article that I often see it gets, um, you know, circled around in the PCOS communities about um, this new, for, they, you know, they, it, the title of the article is New for, Fertility Procedure Helps PCOS Patients Get Pregnant Without Hormone Injections. And they talk about IVM. Right. So IVM is another um, sort of burgeoning technology that I think, you know, the efficacy of that hasn't been demonstrated yet. It stands for in, in vitro maturation. And the idea with that is that we can take eggs that are not – so normally in IVF, we're trying to grow eggs to a certain level of maturity before we do the retrieval. What IVM does is try to take immature eggs, re retrieve them earlier, and then grow them in the lab. 
The idea and how it may be particularly uh, applicable to PCOS women is that, you know, again, you know, when we have so many mature eggs or so many mature follicles, that's where that estrogen level gets really high. And so the idea is that if you're a woman with PCOS and you have lots of follicles and they haven't quite reached maturity yet, but we can get those immature eggs and then grow them in the lab before they, you know, and then, and then fertilize them and move down the path, that that might be safer. Um, it's it's great in theory. I mean, I, I think it, it makes sense logistically, but it hasn't been reproduced in enough different labs that I would say it's something that I would, you know, recommend someone to be asking their doctor about. I would still consider that to be experimental. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, um, of course. So let's talk about egg quality. Um, is there a concern about egg quality in women with PCOS? Yeah. there. I mean, I would say there is. Um, because, again, of, you know, what I was saying before, that there seems to be somewhat lower rate in, in IVF success rates um, in women that have PCOS um, relative to all of the other prognostic factors. Unfortunately, we don't have any good tests for egg quality. So, you know, there's not a good way to sort of look, you know, I mean, sometimes it's obvious that when we do an egg retrieval and the embryologists are looking at the eggs, they may see certain factors that don't look so great or the egg doesn't look so healthy. But aside from that, I mean, in general, there's not a good test for egg quality. So really all we can do is sort of go ahead, do the fertilization and see how the embryo develops. And then, you know, sometimes, like I said, we get a really high number of eggs retrieved, but then for whatever reason, a poor number of healthy embryos that develop. And, you know, we don't have a good reason necessarily to explain why that should be. Um, but that, you know, unfortunately, at that point, it's retrospective. But at that point, we would sort of say, okay, well, there's clearly an issue here. Um, and, it, you know, and if there is, a, you know, a, a sort of a PCOS diagnosis, particularly if it was a stimulation that, you know, again, there was a very high estrogen level or something that, you know, we wouldn't consider to be optimal, we might think that that might um, contribute to to the poor development. But, you know, it's really it's really hard to say. I wish we had better tests of, of quality. The other thing that, again, I would say is that, for example, if we do IVF on, you know, some of the, someone that has PCOS that's, you know, let's say 41, and we get 15 eggs, again, I have to sort of remind people that, you know, at that age, a lot of those eggs are going to be chromosomally abnormal. So even though we're super excited because we got so many, I wouldn't, I would expect a relatively high attrition rate because many of those eggs are going to be abnormal and they're not going to, to develop onto a healthy day five embryo. So again, I don't have a way to test that or to prove that to someone, but I just know statistically that, you know, a lot of them are going to be chromosomally abnormal. And so that's another factor to keep in mind that, you know, if we're, you know, depending on our age, that even if we get a ton of eggs, you know, we we may still not end up with a ton of embryos. So what is kind of that that end age? I know that, you know, there's a lot of women that follow PCOS Diva, and, you know, I hear them saying, you know, I'm 44, I'm 43, you know, 45, and I'm going through, you know, I want to do an IVF cycle. Is there sort of a, a point where it's just not advisable? Um, you know, that's, <clears throat> I hear you. That's, a, you know, that's a difficult question. I would say that when I look at our statistics in, in, in our center, um, the pregnancy rate per cycle for women that are 43 to 44 is just under 10%. So, you know, it's hard for me to tell someone off the bat that they shouldn't try. But, um, you know, it really, it really comes down to a numbers game. Like what I would tell someone, what I tell anybody, in that age range is, you know, like I said, was saying in the beginning, if we can get to where we have a healthy, chromosomally normal embryo, then your pregnancy rate is very high. But there are a lot of hurdles that we have to clear 
to get to that point. So we have to get a reasonable number of eggs that hopefully then turn into a reasonable number of embryos. And if we're doing genetic screening, then we need some of those to come back normal. And so for many women that are 43, 44, we're not going to, we just won't clear all those hurdles. Now, this is where having PCOS could potentially improve your chances because, you know, we would think that hopefully we get more eggs to start off with so that, you know, even though there's, there, even though there's going to be an attrition at each step, if we start out with a high enough number, perhaps, you know, we will get a healthy egg that turns into a healthy embryo. So I think that, you know, I would always encourage someone to come in for the consultation to see where, you know, their ovarian reserve is, to see where, you know, their other fertility um, parameters are, and then make the decision about whether it makes sense or not. Um, you know, I, I think we're not that scary. Um, so I always feel bad when people tell me, you know, they just put off coming to see a fertility doctor for, you know, four years because, you know, they didn't want to come in. I think... It's always helpful to get, you know, empowered and to get the information, even for younger women, um, to come in and make sure they understand what's going on with their fertility because you don't want to all of a sudden wake up and be, you know, 45 and then say, oh, no, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, now my chances are so low. Um, you know, that makes us really sad when that happens. So, um, you know, I think it's helpful for people to come in and make sure they understand what's going on rather than making assumptions or, you know, kind of going off of what their friend told them or what they read online, you know, because there's a lot of misinformation out there, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Now, could you talk a little bit about, you know, once your uh, PCOS patients are pregnant, are there any elevated risks during that pregnancy for the woman with PCOS? In general, the main thing I worry about is gestational diabetes or diabetes in pregnancy. Um, and that is a slightly elevated risk with PCOS. Um, and, you know, that sort of is the first step if somebody ha- develops um, gestational diabetes, then, you know, they are at risk for the baby gaining too much weight or having issues with that. So generally speaking, what I would tell people is that, you know, as we're discharging them, I t- try to tell them, you know, to remember to tell their, their obstetrician that they have that diagnosis and, you know, they might meet the criteria for an early screen for gestational diabetes around 12 weeks or so. Um, usually the, you know, the normal screen for someone that doesn't have additional risk factors happens um, in the second trimester around 24 weeks or so. So, um, you know, usually for the women with PCOS, I would test them early just to be sure that they don't, you know, they're not developing um, any gestational diabetes. That's really the main thing um, that I would worry about. There's definitely not a need based on PCOS diagnosis alone to be seeing a high-risk obstetrician or anything like that. Um, you know, a general OBGYN would be able to take great care of you. It's just I think that um, the main thing is watching out for metabolic disease in pregnancy. Um, and really, you know, again, What's really interesting about PCOS, I think, is that, you know, there's some sort of signals that are, are being sent in our body that we don't 100% understand yet that can then be, you know, carried over to, to the fetus. So if we have poor habits and we have PCOS and, you know, we're pregnant, essentially whatever our metabolic state is, is that's really creating the changes. This is what we call epigenetics. So it's like basically right. influencing on top of the, the genes that the baby's already got or the fetus has already got. There's epigenetic or above those changes that are being influenced by the metabolism of the pregnant woman. And so if you're eating really unhealthfully or there's high circulating levels of insulin or there's too much sugar or, you know, if these things are all off, those are all basically turning on and off signals in the developing fetus's brain that will then govern how they will have their metabolism run for the rest of their lives. And so it's really important because if you're, you know, if you have a predisposition to be insulin resistant and you've got high circulating uh, sugar levels and that's the environment in which your fetus is growing, 
you know, it's important to do as much as you can to be healthy during that time because the last thing you want is to then predispose your child to, you know, being obese and having all of these same issues and sort of the circle continuing. And so, you know, it's it's not just that, you know, you're eating for two. You know, all that stuff is, like, out the window. You have to be, you know, as on top of it as you can, obviously understanding, you know, real life and that it's not easy to do all of these things perfectly. But, you know, to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, this isn't just for that nine months. It's really something that determines the lifelong health of your child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the elevated androgens too are can be a if we can lower those androgens as much as you can through diet and lifestyle, that can be a big help for your baby totally. as well. Um, totally. So I asked some of the the divas um, if they had questions for you, and I was hoping you could field a few questions before sure. we wrap up our podcast. Great. So our first question is from Lauren. She wants to know, is it worth it for PCOS women to even try IVF if all blood work and female and male testing is normal? I mean, I would say definitely. I think, you know, for out of all infertility cases, about about a third of them end up being, you know, unexplained. And um, so, you know, if you have PCOS or even if you didn't, in all honesty, um, you know, if we don't find an obvious reason for why someone's not conceiving, um, you know, sometimes there are things that we don't have a good test for that we're able to circumvent with IVF. And so, you know, it's a, that's a very individual question, but oftentimes I find that people get discouraged if, you know, they're not successful after a couple cycles of, you know, letrozole and IUI or whatnot, and they think, you know, maybe they're just not meant to be pregnant. And, you know, I try to be very candid with my patients and say, you know, this is what the prognosis is, et cetera. And, but, you know, it's, there's, there's very few couples for which it makes, there's just no point in trying. I, I almost never tell anyone that. Um, and it's more a matter of saying, okay, this is your specific situation. This is what's a realistic success rate for you. And does it make sense for you based on that and based on your financial and insurance situation to try this? And I think really for most couples that ends up the answer to that ends up being yes, but you know, it's it's something that is a very good question but also a very specific question. Great. And now Courtney is asking, any suggestions for someone with low AMH to help boost the number of good eggs retrieved? And then she also wonders what you consider a good number of follicles and eggs retrieved. What would that number be? Yeah. Right. So also great questions. So with AMH, so that's basically anti-malarian hormone. That's the hormone that's made by all the resting follicles inside the ovary. So the higher it is, the more eggs there are. And in general, relative to age-based standards, women with PCOS tend to have somewhat higher AMH levels. Um, so a lower AMH indicates that the ovarian reserve is, you know, is lower than one might expect. And it, the interpretation of that is very important because I wouldn't look at the AMH of a 40-year-old and then compare it to the AMH of a 25-year-old. You know, we have, there's a very good study out there that had about 17,000 women and gives us some idea of age-based medians of AMH levels. So I always sort of look at that number and I'm not comparing it to someone, you know, of a different age. I'm saying, okay, for if you come in the door and you're 38, you know, here's where I would expect your AMH to be, and if it's lower, significantly lower than that, then we're talking about something called diminished ovarian reserve, where relative to your age, it looks like that number is a little bit lower than expected. And unfortunately, with ovarian reserve, and this is very frustrating for us, there's not a good way to sort of boost it. 
that decline that we have is basically women were born with a certain number of eggs and that number goes down with age, but that rate at which it goes down is different from woman to woman. So we don't have a good way either really of predicting for any given woman, you know, when her ovarian reserve will start to decline significantly or unfortunately to do anything once we see that it's getting lower um, of boosting it back up. Um, the main thing I can say for people that have lower reserve is that, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, you're sort of watching through your cycle, making sure you're taking your medications as directed, all of those kind of good things, and trying to be as healthful as possible. Again, that's another place where, you know, the healthy lifestyle, although we haven't, you know, been able to conclusively demonstrate it yet, but, you know, that could certainly I truly believe that that could make the difference in terms of the response that we see. And so that's where, you know, trying to take your kind of control back and say, okay, these are the things I can control, which is how I'm eating, you know, my how I'm managing my mental health. Um, I think those are the things that we can try to say, you know, we hope um, leads us to the best possible outcome. Yeah, that's really a great point. I mean, from someone who's been through the fertility roller coaster, um, <laughs> it can be so emotionally exhausting. And, you really, it causes a lot of stress and anxiety, which is, uh, I think women with PCOS are more susceptible, the way, this is my mm -hmm. opinion, the way we're wired. Um, I think we kind of have a, more of a heightened sensitivity to, to stress. You know, certainly our cortisol levels are a little bit more out of whack. But, yes. um Yeah, and I think that all plays, uh, you know, it's all part of this equation. And, um when so many things can feel out of your hands, it's so important to try to take control of something. And you certainly can take control of your lifestyle and your diet and what you're eating and also your attitude and trying to keep a positive frame of mind. Um, Definitely. And, and Definitely. It, and you, I was just going to say, you probably see this in your practice. Sometimes women that take a little break from fertility and relax, mm -hmm they end up magically getting pregnant, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that does happen. And, you know, or sometimes we have people that, you know, went through IVF for their first pregnancy and then, you know, uh, somehow after that, you know, their stress levels are improved or maybe, you know, they're whatever the case may be, yeah, but, you know, end up with a spontaneous subsequent mm -hmm. pregnancy. So, you know, that's always that's always great to see. Um, just to, I don't want to make sure I don't forget the second half of that question about how many um, eggs yes. we're going for. Um, you know, that is another question that is very individual. So, you know, I mean, sure, I would love to be able to get into the double digits for any, um, you know, any couple that comes to the door, but that's not always a realistic goal. And so usually, you know, what I tell people is that when you come in and we do your baseline ultrasound on day three of your cycle um, or on what would be the equivalent of a day three if you don't have regular cycles yourself, um, you know, we sort of can look and see what we call the basal antral follicle count or how many little follicles we see at that time. And at the, out of that number, whatever it is, I hope to be able to get a majority um, of those to grow um, in synchrony when we do the simulation cycle. So if somebody has a total of 10 follicles at that time, you know, I'm not, I know I'm not going to get 20 eggs, um, but I'm hoping to get, you know, maybe seven or eight. And sometimes, you know, I try to set conservative, um, you know, expectations. And if we get more than that, that's awesome. But it's, I think, important not to oversell what could happen. And so, you know, for somebody that has PCOS, if they have very active PCOS type ovaries and, you know, we see a total count of like 40, again, I don't want to get 40 eggs, you know, but I, sh I would feel confident that at that point we'll, we will be into the double digits, um, you know, if we have an optimal stimulation. So 
it's um, it's a very individual number. Um, and then also, like I was saying before, what that will turn into is also very dependent on your age. So if I have, you know, 10 eggs from a 25-year-old versus a 35-year-old versus a 45-year-old, those are all going to be, you know, have differential ability to turn into a healthy embryo. So, you know, it ends up being a pretty personal answer in terms of what seems realistic and what would be a good goal. But, um, you know, like I said before, the most we can get safely is what we aim to do. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been really fantastic. So much information packed into, you know, our 30-minute time frame. Um, anything else that you can think of that we didn't cover that would be important for the PCOS woman to know about IVF? Um, no, I mean, I think we sort of covered it, but, I, you know, I feel very strongly that, you know, because our IVF success rates are increasing and increasing a lot of times in sort of busy clinical practice as physicians we don't get as much time as we would like to sort of talk to people about their long-term health and you know how they can improve their well-being to the best degree and as you were saying before Amy with you know with PCOS we know that there is um, you know sort of a, a predisposition to anxiety and depression and sort of a diminished quality of life whether it's because of the symptoms of PCOS or because of something about the the hormones we don't really know but you know there there's a lot of stuff going on and so you know you definitely want to make sure that if you feel like that question wasn't answered about or wasn't the topic wasn't brought up about you know your lifestyle and what are the things that you can do on your end to improve your outcomes in terms of not only your fertility but a healthy pregnancy and you know long-term health that's part of what our training as reproductive endocrinologists is supposed to be about and so you know you should be with someone that is interested in in at least talking to you about that and making sure that you feel like you understand what it means to have PCOS, not just in terms of doing IVF or or not, but, you know, what it means from a long-term hormonal standpoint for you. I think that that message and that that empowerment is really important. Um, And, you know, making sure that you're as healthy as you can be before you start treatment. And so we've double-checked that your, you know, your A1C level is good and your weight is as good as it can be at that time frame. So, I mean, just sort of a summary of a lot of things we talked about, but you know, finding sort of the right match of someone that is going to take all those things into consideration because it's not, you know, IVF is not supposed to be the cure-all for everything. And, you know, establishing those healthy lifestyle habits is the best way to get the best outcomes for for everything and just sort of start your family in the most healthful manner. And, you know, I think that's something I'm very passionate about. Mm. Now, if somebody is in the the New York, Brooklyn area and wants to... Um, have a consultation about IVF, how can they reach out to you? Sure. Um, So if you just, I think probably the easiest way is if you just Google either my name or RMA of New York, um, our office website will come up, and um, it has the phone number there. You can call any of the phone numbers if you just say you're interested in in seeing Dr. Cardizia at the Brooklyn office. They'll get you scheduled, and, you know, um, we're happy to do consultations. And I I love when PCOS pops up as, you know, the reason for visit in my, you know, sort of schedule because it's it's an important conversation to have. And so, um, you know, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. I'm very available. And uh, I also have some appointments that can be scheduled on ZocDoc. So um, I'm I'm here to help. Great. And we will definitely um, post all that information below the podcast as well. And um, okay. I just wanted to let you know, Dr. Khadija, there's a, a program that I've really enjoyed using um, myself. For They have a PCOS version, but they also have an IVF version. And it's, um, the name of the, the company is called Circle and Bloom, and they put out these really great visualizations for women going through IVF to kind of maintain 
that that positive um, space and to try to reduce the stress um, of that the whole process through um, visualization and meditation. And I just wanted to make everybody aware of it. I've written about the the program on my site, and I'll post a link as well. But I've had several clients that have used it and, and felt like it sort of de- decreased the emotional distress of, you know, waiting to find out um, whether the IVF cycle worked and, you know, all of the waiting game. So just wanted you to, to know that that's out there, um, and you'll have to check yeah, it out. Yeah, that's fantastic. I definitely will check it out. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. Well, thank you again for coming on, and um, it's always a pleasure, and um, I look forward to having you back on the podcast soon. Yes, would be, would be great. Great. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening, and I look forward to being with you again soon. Bye-bye.